Well, good morning again, family. It's great to see you. We are in a five-week series this fall called Give, the Surprising Grace of Giving. Um, All of this is just based on this really simple premise that in a culture of really unchecked consumerism, that one of the most countercultural things that we could do as a church is to be people who are radically generous. And that includes generosity with our money, uh, generosity with our time. And today, we're turning to a, a new way to think about generosity, and that's the giving of our families, the grace of giving our families. And so we're going to do that by looking at Mark chapter 3, a pretty well-known passage about Jesus and his own engagement with his family. And so I'm going to pray and ask for God's help, and then we'll read this together. You can turn there in your Bibles, or you can find it on page 11 in your bulletins. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have already heard this great and beautiful news this morning in our singing um, and in the interview that we orphans have been brought home and called children of the Father. And we pray now that as we turn to your word that you would open our eyes, help me and all of us so that we don't just understand your word, but that we can respond to it with obedience and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear God's word. It is true. It is given to each of you in love. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Family of God, this is the word of the Lord. So as you know, we've just come through another election cycle, uh, and every time we do, we begin to hear this phrase thrown around, uh, family values, family values. It's It's a somewhat politicized phrase. It's used by folks on the right as a call to the restoration of the traditional family, It's used uh, on the left to question what family and what values we're speaking about, and the debate seems to never end. It comes around every year. What I want to do today is try to step outside the political rhetoric of family values for just a moment and look at what Jesus values when it comes to the family. What are the family values of Jesus? And I think when we do, as I have gotten into it deep this week, is that we will discover a couple of things. First of all, we'll discover that Jesus manages to offend just about everyone. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that if Jesus ran for office, he would not win in either political party. Jesus, when it comes to the family, he is somehow at the same time, both deeply challenging of our notions of family and highly elevating of the role of the family all at the same time. Ultimately, he is calling us and our families to participate in his great mission in the world. So that's what we're going to look at together today, okay? I want to try to dig these three things out of the story that we're looking at today. First, that Jesus challenges the family. He deeply challenges our notions and understanding of the family. Second, he reconstitutes the family. He redefines it in many ways. And then third, he calls the family. He calls us to participate in what he's doing, okay? So you guys ready? Okay, let's, let's dig into this. First of all, Jesus challenges the family, A little context about this story, what's going on at the time. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is growing in popularity, at least with one kind of person. He's growing in popularity with the poor, 
He's growing in popularity with the outcasts, with the sinners, with the unclean, the underbelly of society. He's also growing in suspicion among the powerful, the elites, the religious establishment. And so he's gathered in a house. He's teaching, as he often does. And he's in a home, and there's all these ragtag group of people in the house, and he's sitting there teaching them. They're sitting around him in a circle, and there's a knock at the door, and somebody comes in and says, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside, and they need to talk to you. Now, Jesus, being the the very good Jewish son that he was, would be expected to stop whatever he's doing, go outside, honor his mother, prioritize her and his brothers above all else because they are his blood relatives. Instead, he turns and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He looks around the room and he looks at this, this ragtag group of sinners and he looks at these people and he says, here are my mothers. Here are my brothers. These, these are my people. Now, it is, it is really difficult for us to comprehend how, just how shocking and scandalous this would have been in the first century society. I mean, this would be scandalous even today, right? If you said this to your mama, she'd be grabbing you by your ear, right? And pulling, <laughs> pulling you outside. But back then, even, even escalated more so that family was everything. Your primary allegiance was to your blood relatives. And Jesus, being the oldest son in his family, had responsibility to defend the honor of his family, to provide leadership for his patrilineal kinship group. Not only was Jesus rejecting that role, he was dishonoring his family, and he did it in public, bringing shame upon his clan in a shame-honor culture. This is audacious. And if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus keeps doing this. He does this again and again in a culture in which blood is everything, family is everything, fidelity to your clan, your tribe, your people is everything. Jesus instead, again and again, chooses to prioritize those who are not his people, the lost, the broken, the outsider, the unclean, over his own family and clan. Through his teaching, through the very dubious and sketchy characters that he chooses as his disciples, through the women that he chooses to dignify and honor, uh, to the way he touches the leper and the unclean and the sick, to his inclusion of the foreigner and the Samaritan and the Gentile, Jesus shows again and again that it is the heart of God to extend to those beyond the family, beyond the clan, beyond the tribe, that God is building a new family and that he is adopting all sorts of misfits into his new home. And this is why Jesus is so often actually hated even by his family members. In Mark 3, 21, they actually say that he is insane because he is challenging their ethnic and familial superiority. He opposes their prioritization of biological family at the exclusion of others, and he directly confronts their family values, and he, they can't stand it. They can't stand it. So how do we apply this to our own context today? We have a very different kind of culture today. Uh, modernization has you know, dissipated geographic permanence of the generational family. Very few of us live, you know, in households with generations of family members. Yet, nevertheless, especially in the church, we do spend a lot of time talking about the importance of the family, the preservation of the family, the priority of the family. And honestly, that's needed, isn't it? Given the way that the family in America today is deteriorating. And I want to be really clear on this, that God hates this. He hates divorce. 
he says. He hates the fact that 50% of marriages end in divorce, that most marriages only last a few years. These things grieve the heart of God. And Satan is at work destroying the family and breaking them up through adultery, abuse, and apathy and divorce. But the evil one has another tactic, friends, a tactic that is far more nefarious, far more subtle, and that in an effort to preserve the Christian family, many Christians have instead closed up their families. They bunker in, build walls, don't want to let any outsiders in. We see this in this desire to protect our children from any negative influences, to keep them safe at all costs, to find places to live or schools to attend where they can be protected from all danger and harm and unwillingness to open our homes to anyone, adults or or even children who might bring chaos and negativity into the home. I believe, friends, that the evil one wants this. He wants to close up the Christian family, to focus solely on our biological children, to make them the priority above all others, to idolize the nuclear family to the point that we have become closed off to the broken people, the broken children, and the broken places of the world. Jesus is coming along, and he's saying to us, to our families, he's saying, I don't want to break up your family. I want to break it open. I want to break it open. I want to open the doors wide. I want to bring new people in because this is what the Messiah does. This is what the kingdom is about. Breaking open the tribe, challenging the clan, opening the door of God's house to others by grace. This is what Jesus is now doing in the world. And this is why he challenges the family every time we turn in upon ourselves to the exclusion of those that God wants to love. So here's a question. Here's a question for all of us to think about is where in your effort to prioritize and preserve your family, may you have fallen into Satan's other trap, which is the closing of your family. In what ways might you have closed your family to those that Jesus wants to love? That's, that's the first thing, okay? So he challenges the family. Second, though, Jesus reconstitutes the family. Not only do we see Jesus challenging these ancient family values, but he is at the same time recreating a new family. He is redefining what family is. And for Jesus, it is no longer those who are related by blood, but it is those who are related by grace. Grace is now the the linking factor between those in his family. Jesus says, my family is now a bunch of adopted misfits, a collection of former orphans who have been brought into this new family of God. Friends, of all the themes and the great truths of the gospel, this theme of adoption is perhaps one of the most beautiful, certainly one of the most deep and intimate and affectionate. This this idea that God, the Father, has been adopted us orphans into his family. Paul says it like this in Galatians 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, listen to this, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of the king. Jesus came into the world so that we can be adopted, not just forgiven of sin, which is wonderful, not just declared righteous through justification, but adopted as a child at the father's table, an heir of the father's house with the same privileges, power, intimacy, and access as Jesus Christ himself. There's nothing higher than this, friends. One of the, I learned this from my, my dear friend, Percy Strickland. Some of you know Percy Percy and his wife, Angie, started chat uh, down in Churchill that worked with youth in our community for many years, and they've since moved to North Carolina. But 
Percy and Angie, years ago, they have four biological children, but they also, along the way, adopted two additional children, brother and sister, named Taman and Essie. And, you know, I say this with shame now, that years ago when I first got to know Percy, and you would ask him how many kids he had, he just said six. No comment. He just said six. You ask him the ages, he said, oh, well, I've got, got four under six, and then one's 18 and one's 21. No commentary. And that used to really bother me. I think you explain or something, but for Percy, he never would. Because to Percy, they were his kids, full stop. No differentiation between them. He wouldn't explain that, you know, two of his kids are of a different race. Two of his kids look totally unlike him. They are his. They belong to him. And walking over the journey of 10 to 12 years with Percy, I've seen that those kids are loved every bit as much with the same degree of love and support and intimacy and protection and power and access as the four that came from Percy and Angie's own body. And that is the gospel, friends. That is the gospel. Jesus says this astonishing thing in John 17. Listen to this. He says, Father, you have loved them, speaking about you, you have loved them even as you love me. Have you ever thought about that? He's saying that for those who know Jesus, the Father loves you every bit as much as he loves his own son with that much power, that much joy, that much jubilation, that much constancy. He loves you no less than he loves his own son, Jesus Christ. This truth of adoption has powerful vertical and horizontal implications. Vertically, it means that you are now given through Jesus what your heart longs for. All of us have orphan hearts, friends. All of us have orphan hearts. I don't care how good of a family you have. I don't care how good your friends are. We all have desperate, lonely, restless, orphan hearts that long for a home. I have a great dad who I love, and he loves me. We have a good relationship. But it wasn't until I really began to understand this adoptive father love of God for me that I finally began to sort of overcome my anxiety, my jealousy, my insecurity, constantly living on a, on a pass-fail basis, living as an orphan. It wasn't until I understood the father love of God and that Jesus was saying, you are welcome as a fellow brother with me adopted into the Father's house, and only then you will be free, friends. Your heart yearns for this. So there is a vertical dimension, but there's also a horizontal dimension that if you are a Christian, when you become a Christian, not only do you have a biological family that you're born into, you have a spiritual family that you're born again into. And Jesus, in this teaching in Mark and in many other places, is actually saying that now our primary allegiance is to the spiritual family of God, even over our biological family. Our first priority is now the family of God. Now, this does not mean, of course, you should neglect your children or not take care of your aging parents. Um, in fact, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees in Mark 7 for using religion to ignore their duties to their parents. So what does this mean? What does this mean that we're called to prioritize our spiritual family? Well, let me just mention a couple of implications. First of all, if you're single, and I know that many of you here are single, or if you don't have a family, or if your biological family is totally messed up and in disrepair, as I know it is for many of you. Friends, here's the good news. You have a family. You have a permanent, forever family. 
in and through Jesus. In a patriarchal society in which family and childbearing and marriage was everything, Jesus had the audacity to say that you have none of those things. You are a person of immense worth and value. He says in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying there that the greatest expression of human love is not between two lovers, not between husband and wife, not between parent and child, but between friends in the spiritual family of God. And that's something that every single one of you can have, no matter how how messed up your biological family is. That's the first thing. You have a family in Jesus. Second, though, it means that if you do have a family and are married or you do have kids, remember that they are not the most lasting relationships that you have. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus clearly says in Luke 20 that there will be no marriage in the new creation in the age to come, which means that if you're married, your relationship with your spouse, well, so, so my relationship with Sarah, my wife, as her brother, will far outlast my relationship to her as her husband. Does that, does that make sense what I'm saying? That'll kind of blow your mind a little bit. <laughs> These relationships in the kingdom, oh my goodness, friends, these are going to last. You better get used to these people. <laughs> these are lasting family, friends. Long past your own biological family is in the old age. And that's part of the reason why you need the church and why we need to start living as the church even now. This is why your family needs the church. Your family is not self-sufficient and self-contained. Your family will only flourish when it comes under the sphere of the spiritual family of the church. Finally, though, if you have a family and a biological kids, it means that the values of our biological families must come under the reign of the values of the kingdom family of God and not vice versa. I am a dad and every day I am tempted to believe that what my kids need most, most of all in the world is protection and security and wealth and fantastic vacations and happiness and successful careers and protection from harm and comfortable lifestyles and access to as many privileges as possible to be detached and isolated from the problems and the brokenness of the world. I am tempted to believe that every single day. And as followers of Jesus, we must say no. We say no to those things. We say no. As followers of Jesus, in our families, we must embrace the values of Jesus in his kingdom, hospitality and generosity, simplicity and community, justice and mercy for the poor and the lost, the ability to redemptively suffer and, and endure pain and costly sacrifice. I need to believe that what my kids need most is not a big backyard and a college education and a great vacation and well-paying jobs, but that what my kids need most is a relationship with Jesus, a love for his church, and a life that is formed by the values of his kingdom. That's the most radical, countercultural thing that we could believe as parents, friends. And so the way that we can best shape and nurture our biological families is by bringing them under the rule of the kingdom family of God, which is the only lasting family that you and I have. So Jesus reconstitutes the family, not as those that you're related to by blood, but those that you're related to by grace. And he calls you, even within your biological family, to live that way. Okay? So... Jesus challenges the family, he reconstitutes it, and finally he calls it. Growing up, I had a friend whose parents had a family business. 
So all of us guys were always talking and dreaming and trying to figure out what we were going to be when we grew up, what career we'd be engaged in, but he always just knew what he was going to do. No questions, no complications, no matter what. He was going to do what his father did. That's just what he did. For those of us who have been forgiven and saved and adopted into the family of God, God now calls us into his family business. That's what we're called to do. And what is his business? His business is expanding his family. That's the business that he's in, the business of adoption. That's what God is up to in the world. God is up to building this multiracial, multi-ethnic, motley mix of children from every nation under heaven, drawing them by grace into his new family. We are in his family business. If you know Jesus, you're in his family business. And so we're called to use our biological families and our church family to extend the spiritual family, to bring others in by grace. How do we do this? Well, let me just mention a few ways that we can do this. First of all, we could do this through literal adoption that we've heard about today already. There are not many things that we can be unequivocally clear about that the Bible teaches that the people of God are called to do, but this is one of them, and that is to care for orphans. Isaiah 1, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself being polluted by the world. You know, I love what Janet said earlier. She said, you know, there are few problems that the church is called to address that are not only as crystal clear as this, but are actually as solvable as this. Very few in the world. In fact, if just one family from every church in Henrico County volunteered to be a foster family, the entire foster problem right now in Henrico County would be solved. This happened. Um, David Platt was the pastor of a big church in Birmingham, and he called up one day the Department of Human Resources in Shelby County in Alabama, and he asked the lady who answered the phone, how many families would you need to take care of all the foster and adoption needs that we have in our entire county? And she just laughed. He said, no, 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 I'm serious. How many families would we need? And she said, well, it would be a miracle if we had 150 more families. So that Sunday, he stood up. He asked his people to sign up to be foster family. 160 did. The entire foster crisis in Shelby County was solved in, an in a single week. Friends, that's what happens when the biological family and the values of the biological family come under the kingdom values of, of the reign of Jesus. Now, the call to orphans is going to look very different for different people. Some of us are called to adopt and foster. I would encourage you to pray about that. Some could get trained as respite care providers. Others, it'll be financial and emotional support or prayer. Just come to the lunch if you're interested at all on December 3rd in any way. But not all of us are called to this. This is an issue of calling. It's an issue of prayer. But regardless of what we're called to, Jesus calls us to give our families away in love. Here's other ways that we can do it. Practice hospitality. Friends, hospitality is not the same as entertainment. Hospitality is not a performance art. Uh, your home does not need to look like a Pottery Barn catalog to practice hospitality. Hospitality is just simply opening the doors, people, into, your, into the dysfunctions that you live in every day. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome here. That's what hospitality is, right? So practice that. Practice generosity. Um, Heidi Little shared a wonderful article that I'll probably send to you this week. The, the way that we could practice generosity with our families, with our kids, making meals for others, visiting the elderly, the sick, or the imprisoned, drawing cards for those who might need encouragement, 
Um, be a family to those that need a family. We've got a lot of college students in our church that are just longing to eat food that is real food, you know, <laughs> longing to. Um, invite them in, into your homes. You know, talk to, talk to our intern, Philip. Um, he'll set you up with one. We've got a lot of single people in our church. We've got a lot of internationals. We've got a lot of widows and widowers, the elderly. Include people in the church into your family. Invite people to live with you. Many of you have an extra bedroom. Many of you have a sofa bed. There's a, a, a family of five living with us right now. And it is a crazy mess. But man, it is fun. In fact, our, our little uh, pet rabbit died on Tuesday, which was very sad. But at dinner time, Parker, the dad and the other family, showed up with a new rabbit for our family. That's what happens. It's crazy stuff that happens. Unfortunately, the new rabbit died the next day. Um, so we're not sure what we're going to do about that. Um, the Widmers are not meant to have rabbits. Um, so anyway, invite people to live with you. Crazy stuff happens. Uh, finally, get involved in, the, in, our, in a parish group. The whole reason we invented parish groups was to do this, to join in the adventure of living in a multi-generational family in mission around a common Lord to a common place. Jesus is wanting to break open our families to bring others in. There, there's, a, there's this amazing um, scene at the end of that beautiful movie, Cold Mountain, the Civil War film, where Ruby, who is this tough woman, uh, abused by her father, very difficult life, she goes out into the field and she sets up a table. She sets out a feast under the great willow tree in the field. And she there gathers all the beat-up misfits who have endured the ravages of the war. So there she is with her husband and their two kids. There is her estranged father around the table. There is Sally, a woman who is mute, having seen her entire family murdered. There's Ada, whose husband Inman was killed just after one day of marriage. And there, right in the center of the table, is Ada's young baby, daughter, Grace. And friends, that is a picture of the call of the family of Jesus, to spread a table in the wilderness, a table for all those who are broken and bleeding and who need to feast on the Father's love. And right in the middle of it all is grace. Jesus calls our family to extend his grace to those who need the Father's love. So we've seen these three things today, friends. We've seen Jesus challenges the family. Any attitude that we foster in our families that turns our families inward at the exclusion of those Jesus seeks to love, Jesus rejects. Second, Jesus reconstitutes the family. He revisions the family as those not bound by blood but bound by grace. And we are called to live that way in the world, even in our biological families. And finally, he calls the family that we might participate in the hospitality mission of Jesus and calling others into the Father's house by grace. I would be remiss if I did not say that all of this is costly, friends. This flies in the face of the American dream. Do you hear me? We will, we, I have to be clear on that. This Adopting a child, becoming a foster family, inviting someone to live with you, hosting a parish group, even just inviting someone to lunch, does not add to your comfort and does not increase your prosperity and does not aid your ease. Giving your family away is hard. It's costly. At times, it's painful. 
But here's what you get. The indescribable joy of sacrificial love for others and learning more and more about the adoptive love of the Father God. Jesus broke open his family for you. As far as I know, Jesus has the only functional family in the universe. It's called the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, enduring in eternal happiness from all creation. And yet the triune God broke open his family for you that you orphan might have a forever home. And now he says, as the only son became an orphan for you so that you orphan can become a son, as Jesus Christ gave his family for you that you might be a part of his forever home, will you let your life and your family now be broken open for others? This is grace, friends. This is the best life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have so generously given your family to us, that you pursued us rebellious and homeless orphans, even to the point of your own son becoming an orphan in order to make us children. I pray that every person here would, first of all, know the pursuing heart of the Father who seeks to adopt them in love. I pray that those of us who are scared or anxious today, insecure or jealous, fearful or guilty, that we would receive the the grace of Jesus today and help us to live this week not as orphans but as children who have a Father who loves us, who knows the hairs on our head, and who always has our back. And also help us, God, to live as a new family. We do pray for the orphan crisis in Virginia and in the world. Raise up your church, O God, and help us regardless to give our families away as you have given your family to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.